0: Welcome to the Two Cities podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 70. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're talking about George Floyd and reflections on race one year later with Dr. Walter Augustine, who is the Director of Intercultural Education and Research in the Division of Diversity and Inclusion at Biola University. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Grace Sangalang Ng, Reverend Daniel Parham, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this is now the third episode in our conversation on cultural identity. And in this episode, we're reflecting on the murder of George Floyd and the racial reckoning that has resulted one year out. And so, Grace and and, and Daniel, what what were some of the things about our discussion with Dr. Augustine that really stood out to the two of you?
1: Yeah. So I think for me, um, I really liked how Dr. Augustine framed everything through a theological lens, especially looking at the theological framework of repentance. Um, I think that was really helpful. And um, just seeing the hope, um, even in the midst of um, the pain and the suffering that has happened this past year, and that's just a reflection of the pain and suffering that has been happening for hundreds of years. Um, I think just having that hope is really important. So I appreciated that a lot.
2: I appreciated Dr. Augustine's patience and I think willingness to, to lean into, I think the spaces of tension that is the conversational race. You could, you could tell through our discussion that his wisdom to know when to sit and listen um, while he has an incredible depth of knowledge, um, I think is so facilitative to, to how we discuss these matters and is a model for us on how to engage in dialogue that I think is healthy.
0: And here's our discussion with Dr. Augustine. Thanks so much for joining us again, Dr. Augustine. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you again. So how about we start by hearing a little bit about your reflections on this past year since the tragic murder of George Floyd last Memorial Day. What are some things that you feel that we've learned? What are some things that you feel like you're encouraged by, but also some things that you are discouraged by and frustrated by as well?
3: Yeah, uh, John, that's a great question. Um, This past year has been a whirlwind, I think, in many ways, uh, as a result of what we uh, experienced between uh, George Floyd and uh, how that sparked all the protests that were going on. I I think that um, from my perspective, um, we learned um, some things that are somewhat hopeful. Um, And the areas that I I find to be hopeful is that um, more people were made aware of um, some of the issues of racial uh, injustice that have taken place and racial tensions. And we saw a multi-ethnic, multicultural effort um, to address those issues and to protest against those issues. And so um, that was definitely a very encouraging sign. At the same time, I think we've also learned uh, to some extent that there is still significant backlash and significant opposition to addressing issues of racial injustice or even believe that there are are issues of racial injustice uh, that exist. Uh, For me, one of the things that was really um, sobering and fascinating was that recently um, between a partnership with uh, Barna Research Group and the Racial Justice and Unity Center led by Dr. Michael Emerson and Dr. Glenn Bracey, they released a report called Beyond Diversity. And in this report, uh, they talked about specifically um, Christians that they surveyed to ask them what their views were on race and racial relations. And one of the interesting pieces to that was the observation that um, in 2020, they, they initially did their polls in 2019, but then they came back and re folks in 2020 after George Floyd. And when they did the repolling of folks, they found a stark difference both in the belief um, of whether or not there were major racial issues going on within our nation, as well as the motivation. To resolve those racial issues and the beliefs divided along racial lines, primarily. Um, so, and, and not only racial, though, but one, one other piece that was a, a little bit challenging and um, discouraging as well, generationally. Um, they also found issues so that the motivation decreased um, generationally between 2019 and the end of 2020 um, amongst number of generations uh, with regards to their uh, desire to resolve any racial issues that are going on. So there's signs of hope. That are there in terms of the multi-racial, multi-ethnic, multicultural gatherings, um, and there's but there's also signs of challenge um, in terms of uh, opposition to believing or solving the issues with regards to race relations. Uh,
2: thank you, Walter. For I think the the data behind the story and for the impact. Right we we can we have both qualitative and quantitative. Assessment of the world in which we've been living in has just been magnified um, by the George Floyd situation. And, and then also, I think subsequently, I think it'll be interesting to see the results of people's views post um, a verdict in, in regards to the situation at hand, where people had very divergent views on uh, criminality versus uh, criminality of, of George and criminality of the officer involved. And how that was also polarized in so many ways along the lines of race. When I when I think about my my own reflections and think a year ago, from a qualitative perspective, it was probably one of the more uh, unraveling moments in in, I think in my like racialized experience, particularly because I saw clearly the intersection of the church and race more so than I ever had before. Right. Uh, And I think that was discouraging. But along the lines of what Walter said, also hopeful. It was it was there was this tension between the two because while there was great great dialogue happening, that was painful. It also I think opened the eyes to many, particularly in the white evangelical community, on how divorced uh, much of theology is from common practice. Right, like orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. We've 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 navigated these conversations before, um, and really how much dichotomy there is between those two areas. And when you confront a person's pain, uh, you you realize how divided those two areas are in the lives of our I think of our churches, uh, particularly in the West. Um, and so for for me, it, the, the navigation of those elements exposed an element of dissonance that I have from the perspectives that I've been living in for so long but didn't know so deeply how ingrained they were in the minds of people. And I think that experience played out. um, I I can't speak for everyone within the the Black Christian community, but I think I am a composite of much of those experiences that happened in the Black church community um, over this past year. With that, I think leaning into a verdict now in, in that case, and the verdict is different from what we're going to see in terms of what actual sentencing will look like, I've described this moment as a hopeful continuum. I don't necessarily want to name it as justice. It's hard for me to give another word to it, though, but I do think that it is an element of accountability that will lead to justice. And I think we also we have to start at the accountability piece first before we actually can get to the justice piece first, or second, uh, rather. And so those are those kind of the, the initial framework that I had of this emotional dissonance that I experienced in that moment that I had to process through because I realized that my experience as a Black Christian was very divorced from much of the experience of my white brothers and sisters who've grown up in evangelical spaces. And to try to reconcile those does not happen in 12 months. But what I, w- I will say is that it's given me the opportunity to learn more of the history that is behind uh, these views that have led to, I think, some of the, the division and ignorances on, on both sides of how we viewed the church in moments of racial tension. And there's much more work to be done. But to what Walter said, and I agree, there's hope because I think there's more of a willingness to come to the table before, before shutting down these conversations than there were actually, I think, leading up to George Floyd. George Floyd was kind of this tantamount experience of trauma um, that people didn't know how to reconcile. And so it's 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 provided more conversations in the space that I think we need to have.
3: I really appreciate appreciated uh, Daniel what what it was that you had to share. Um, I, I I just want to touch real quickly also on this thing of of justice in light of the verdict uh, that just came down. And so with that issue, I I agree with Daniel that in Kanye justice becomes somewhat problematic. And and even at the verdict, um, we heard the lawyer for George Floyd's family saying this is not justice. And I think it would be. Interesting to think about it in a few different ways. One, the fact that there's different types of justice, right? Um, so you have retributive justice, um, righting a wrong, but there's also restorative justice as well. And I think that in this situation, specifically in the George Floyd situation, we start to possibly see an inkling of retributive justice. But in the larger scale, in terms of the structures and the systems, we're not necessarily seeing retributive justice take place wholesale. And then at the same time, I think it is also important to say that even though in this verdict, we may have seen, depending on what side you fall on, you may have seen the beginnings of retributive justice, it does not necessarily mean that restorative justice is going to take place between those who are divided. So I I agree with Daniel. It's it's difficult to call it justice because it's one verdict, one situation. Um, And then also, it does not necessarily need to a furthering restorative justice in relationship between different parties. And I think that's going to be the deeper, harder work that
2: needs to take place. Place. Dr. Augustine, I, I think when we think of restorative justice in in a hypothetical world, as you think about the situation that occurred, what would have been an element of restorative justice? Because in my mind, I, I, it's hard for me to actually imagine restorative justice in this sense because the person who was wronged is is no longer living. So, how do we reconcile those moments? Because I think in our experience, in the African American experience many of these moments have been in in response to a loss of life not just an abuse of life um, or an assault of life right but cessation of life right and so how how do we i think particularly in the church reconcile that level of restorative justice if it's at all possible Uh, that's
3: a great question daniel and uh Honestly, I'll just be honest. I don't know if I have all the answers to that. Uh, I think that is one of the major challenges that faces us as the body of Christ and as the church, as you said. And and, and again, I agreed with you. Right. The attorney for the uh, George Floyd's family said exactly what you said. Justice has not necessarily been done here today because no verdict is going to restore George Floyd back to his family. And as you said, with it being a loss of life, there is no way um, to restore that life back to the family. Um, The one picture, even as you were talking about restorative justice, though, Dan, the one picture that comes to my mind, and again, it's not perfect, but what comes to my mind is the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions of South Africa after apartheid. Many... Killings, maimings, tortures, atrocities took place under apartheid. But because they had sort of a communal restorative mindset, they set up opportunities for relationship hopefully to be restored through justice, through a, a sharing, a confession of uh, what had been done by those who had perpetrated the injustices in order to be able to start moving towards a restored Community. Now, what that would look like in our country, I'm not sure. I know in North Carolina, they've done that in the past in some small areas of North Carolina and other places as well. But I think that that might be sort of a first step towards restorative justice. Last thought I'll throw out there, and it's not an exact analogy, but I'm thinking biblically for a second. And so if we think biblically, I think about in Luke's gospel the story of Zacchaeus the tax collector, who, though he hadn't murdered anybody, um, you get the implication as a tax collector, he has defrauded people, that he has exploited people. And so with Zacchaeus, after uh, Jesus calls him down, because we know that he was, he was ostracized from the rest of the community, did not have a good relationship with the rest of the community, goes to G, uh, Jesus goes to his house for a meal. Basically, Zacchaeus stands up in the middle of the meal And he says to him, he he says, Lord, here and now, I give away half of my possessions to the poor. And he says, and if I've wronged anyone, I will pay them back four times what I have taken from them. In my mind, that is an example, a tangible example of a form of restorative justice, of Zacchaeus trying to, even though he knew he could not completely make up for his wrong, taking steps, taking efforts to try to address um, some of the injustices that he had committed before he became a Christian. So that might be, again, not a perfect analogy, but that might be, uh, you know, sort of an example or a starting point between, from a biblical standpoint, and then think about Truth and Reconciliation Commission from a more modern day standpoint of ways that we might be able to start moving towards restorative justice. I wonder if, you know, moving more broadly and thinking about the injustices that
0: have been done to African Americans throughout our nation's history, what the two of you might think about reparations, for example, as a a possible kind of restorative justice. I know this is a um, controversial topic, but I'm curious to consider that as as a type of restorative justice.
3: Sure. So yeah, I'll go ahead and just get started and respond to that a little bit here, John. When we talk about reparations and restorative justice, I think of it a little bit broader, in a little bit of a broader theological, biblical category. And that category is repentance. I think that when we saw the example of Zacchaeus, which I just mentioned a little bit earlier, Um, The example of Zacchaeus was an example of repentance, um, because afterwards, that's when Jesus said, well, you know, you are not far from the king. Truly, this is, right, a son of Abraham, right? Um, So there's this sense of repentance that is taking place there. However, at the same time, I also want to acknowledge this, which is that um, early on, I believe it is in Luke's gospel, before Jesus begins his ministry, when John the Baptist is baptizing Um, He tells the Pharisees and others who come to him, he says to them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And in the fruit that he tells them to produce, it is not necessarily a thing of going back and doing some and and repaying others from things they've done in the past. But in that situation, it's a thing of treating people right going forward. Um, It is a situation where he says basically, uh, you who are tax collectors, do not collect more than what you are owed. Um, If you're a soldier or centurion, treat the people. Properly And with respect, right? Those types of things. So I think the question of reparations, as we think about that as a, I think of it as um, possibly a form of repentance and within that larger category of repentance and really asking the question, what should repentance look like? In our society today. Uh, The second thing I would say is that when we talk about reparations, people's minds automatically go to finances, uh, automatically go to um, wealth and redistribution of wealth. However, that is not necessarily the only form that reparations can take Um, reparations can take uh, the form of education and additional educational opportunities um, skill building um, and a number of other ways that many have uh, actually uh, discussed in the past in terms of how reparations might look so. I really don't have the answer in terms of, um, whether or not reparations is needed. Um, but I, I, Tend to look at it in the larger biblical uh, framework of repentance and then say, I think it's worth taking a deeper look at our society, at what has happened in our society, and to ask the question, what does it mean for our society to repent? What format should that take? Um, and then looking at it from from that lens to decide, is it something that is um, monetary? Is it something that's monetary and something else? Um, or is it some other form- Form entirely. So, those are just a, a few thoughts that come to my mind.
2: I think the uh, element to what what you said, Doctor Augustine. I think um, you know when I think about wealth and the the accumulation of wealth does not purely come through cash flow, right? But it also comes through land. It also comes through property. I think we had a situation recently in Los Angeles, a section of property that was once owned by an African American family that was kind of swindled away from them. Uh, which was restored to them by the county, right? And um, to think of some of those elements that also uh, are a form of reparation that that can create an economic base um, for those involved. I think that's particularly a way in which we can think about repentance in our cultural context, right? In a capitalistic society, right? Where, like, how do we restore elements of loss to those whom we've, you know, historically, Uh, Have taken away from. uh, We could think from an economic standpoint in terms of property, uh, in terms of land. um, You know, as we know that much of those those divergent areas of disadvantage have actually created even more of a vacuum for for individuals, people of color to to accumulate any form of wealth. Uh, You know, and I think there's a difference between uh, having an element of wealth and being wealthy, right? There, There we we could dialogue on that. Um, throughout, so I even wonder in in that sense, like thinking through the particularity to what you said of our cultural context. What are ways that we can repent and restore? But the problem I think that we both have discussed, uh, and I think in earlier conversations, is the particularity versus kind of the communal understanding. Right? Why do I have to give something? To which the question is, why do you have something? And I think a lot of times we don't ask that. Right? We don't ask like, oh, I am standing on the shoulders of other people, albeit for good or for bad um, that I have benefited from. And I think as we peel those layers back, then we expose some of those areas where we can even repent on behalf of our fathers, our forefathers, for what we can benefit from and, and we're not detracting from, but also that we could distribute and, and provide um, some level of equity uh, to those uh, who have been taken advantage of.
1: I think something else um, that I think about when I think about reparations. Yeah. And thank you so much for yeah, that discussion, um, Dr. Augustine and Daniel. It was yeah, super helpful to think through those issues. But something I also think about is just how the reparations just don't do justice to the pain and trauma that actually occurred. Yeah, like in thinking about um even like the reparations to the Japanese community after World War II, after the internment camps, like a lot of those people lost their land um, and like lost their businesses. And so even though the government may have given them some like financial support afterwards, it doesn't really like give them back what they actually initially had in the first place. So I think, yeah, just The discussion of reparations is really difficult because it is just so complex, Um, even though we want to move towards, you know, that restorative justice, as you had mentioned, Dr. Augustine, um, it's just like a really difficult thing to navigate.
3: Thanks, Grace. I I wholeheartedly agree with you, and and I I would just also say, uh, between Grace, between what you shared and what Daniel shared, I I agree with you all. And I also, again, this is why I think I frame this within the larger context of repentance, because I, I also don't want to lose the perspective of, let's say, reparations in some form takes place. Does that change how we deal with and interact with one another going forward from here? And that's why I go back to John the Baptist and his instructions uh, down at the Jordan River, that it's it's not just uh, about writing the wrongs from before, which, as you point out, Grace, you can never truly write, right, right? Uh, and again, going back to George Floyd— we cannot restore his life and restore him to his family. Um, You cannot restore what was lost by the Japanese uh, community that was interned within their own homeland. Right. And we could say the same thing uh, for the indigenous tribes and indigenous peoples of America as well. Uh, You cannot fully restore that. But at the same time, I also don't want us to think that if we make efforts towards that restoration, that then our job is done and there's nothing else that we need to change going forward but that's where i think this thing of repentance that uh, we see in john the baptist in luke's gospel is helpful because he says now going forward this is how you should relate to one another going forward this is how you should treat one another going forward from this moment and so i think as as we're sitting here talking about this right that that and i think all y'all would probably agree with me it's, it's It's not an either or, but in some respects, it's a both and it's, it's addressing what's happened in the past, but then it's also addressing how do we relate to one another going forward from this moment?
1: Yeah, I really like how you framed it in, um, yeah, through the theological lens, Dr. Augustine, just looking at um, the whole framework of repentance. I think that's really helpful to see. And like how you said, um, it doesn't just stop with like one action, but it's how do we move forward from here? it's a process. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a really helpful way to see it. And I think something that is helpful in building reconciliation with different groups together is seeing how we are all made in the image of God. And I think having that underlying perspective helps us relate to one another, you know, in a more equitable way. Because I think in the past, historically, oftentimes, maybe the people in power or the dominant culture saw themselves as being superior and other people as inferior. And so that kind of dynamic, you know, perpetuates this injustice. Um, I was actually just reading this book called um, Brown Skin, White Minds, and it's about Filipino-American post-colonial psychology and just how much, I, I didn't even realize like the historical background of how the colonization of the Philippines, um, first from the Spanish and then America, it perpetuated this colonial mentality in Filipinos. And so I can even see that in myself and in my community, how we often don't see ourselves as valuable as others. And I think having that uh, mindset of seeing everyone uh, made in the image of God including ourselves, that that can also be empowering. Um, but it it is like the full equalizing force um, in, in this discussion. Also, um, just going back to what you had initially said, um, Dr. Augustine, about um, this whole multicultural movement that's happening in wanting to fight for justice. I think, yeah, in the Asian American community, as we see a lot of anti-Asian discrimination happening currently. I think that helps us stand with our Black brothers and sisters and Latino brothers and sisters and Indigenous people, um, brothers and sisters, you know, like, because of the pain that we all have experienced of oppression, um, I think that really does help us stand with one another. And that can, yeah, that can break some of those racial barriers.
0: Grace, I appreciate you bringing up that book. I've not read it, but I'm very intrigued by it. It reminds me of kind of the premise of Get Out, uh, which I think is relevant for a lot of what we're talking about, too, where... You know, in in this film, what you have is this kind of like obsession with black bodies, right? And it's sort of this like microaggression of like infatuation with the physicality of black people. But this sort of operation of that black body by a white mind in this kind of, you know, weird, creepy sci-fi sort of thing. Um, Like think about LeBron James, right? When LeBron James says something political, it's like shut up and dribble. You know, it's like, we want your black body to do certain things. We don't want your black mind.
2: Yeah. I I think one thing that comes to my mind is like, even to the extent of those movies, not necessarily, I'm not sure the context of who produces or write these, you know, writes these movies. Cause I was thinking like a Tyler Perry type of situation where like, there's this conundrum of like, at one sense, um, there is this promotion of, black actors black exes well black actors but on the other side there is this perpetuation even from within our own community of the stereotypes that have been placed upon us right so you know not trying to throw shade on Tyler Perry but a lot of Tyler Perry's written content is the antithesis of the stereotypes we've been trying to counteract for for decades right so like the kind of the angry frustrated black grandma which is not necessarily the case for majority of black families Right? They, they're the revered. They're the respected. They're, they're the ones that handle the conflict, don't create the conflict. Um, so I was going a whole nother way. Uh, I think that's another conversation. And and that one I might not be able to publicize because then my black folks will be mad at me. But I love Tyler Perry. Uh, like, look, I don't have I don't hate Tyler Perry. I'm just saying like there hasn't been much creativity beyond the antithesis of a lot of the stereotyping that has been there. Um, so I'm not saying people shouldn't watch him. I think they should just come into that with that mindset, like this is not black life. This is not the n- normative black life. Most of our grandmothers don't have guns in their purses and you know about to slap you and cuss you out. So
3: First of all, that was awesome, Daniel. Thank you. (laughs) I was thinking about that that same picture as well. My grandmas, neither of my grandmas, as far as I know, had a gun in their their purse, (laughs) any of that. So uh, that's great. Yeah, John, and I think this speaks both to what you shared and with what Grace shared to some extent as well, which is sort of this fascination with how we categorize Mm -hmm. other folks and in, in particular in this conversation, how we categorize black people. And much of this goes back hundreds and hundreds of years in terms of how Black people have been viewed and have been seen. And I I just think about um some of the the stereotypes that they had of the African slave. So the African slaves were typically thought of either in a uh, especially for their women, somewhat in a hypersexualized manner, for their but also for their men, sort of the the whole strong black man, strong black buck type of thing. But then also they were categorized many times as of lesser intelligence or as um, those who, could be um, entertaining and and docile, uh, but then you also had those who were looked at dangerously. And so I think that all of those um, still have, in some respects, some manifestation today in our society today. And so even thinking, I'm gonna take this back to George Floyd, for a second, um, there was a, a another situation before George Floyd um, with a gentleman by the name of Terrence Crutcher in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Malcolm Gladwell speaks about this, um, where Terrence Crutcher was uh, an African-American male who was on his way home. Uh, He had just registered to re-enroll in community college. He uh, was someone who worked in his church and sang in a choir um, and had been through some hard times, but was turning his life around. And his car broke down on the side of the road. And so he's outside, um, you know, trying to get some help. A police officer um, drives by. And uh, she has been called to a totally different, she'd been called to like a, I think it was a breaking and entering or disturbing the peace or something of that nature situation. Um, And then she stops. And sees him and the situation somehow quickly escalated, Um, even though he hadn't done anything. He was um, on the side of the road. Um, Eventually, he turned back towards his vehicle. He, He had been complying and he turns back towards his vehicle and starts to go back towards his vehicle and she shoots him. Well, the reason why I bring this up is because while the situation was going on, there was a police helicopter that showed up uh, on the scene and they were looking down on the situation. And the um, person on the, um, the, the radio from the helicopter said, yeah, this looks like a dangerous dude and t- basically said he looks like he's about 6'2", weighs about 300 pounds. Well, he was actually about five eight five nine and weighed about 200, 230 pounds. So th- there's this image, this um, fascination, but also fear at the same time of Black people, Black bodies. And then I think at to add one other element to it. Um, there's a fear, there's a fascination, but then there's also sort of this acknowledgement of only one aspect of black folks. Um, I, I think about uh, the Ted talk that's, that's well known by many that is called the danger of a single story. How we really don't take the time to truly get to know each other um, very well and, and learn more about each other beyond one aspect of who we are in terms of our stories. Uh, and then a final thought, and I'll, I'll stop on this, but just in reference to what uh, Grace was referring to, I, I remember when uh, the movie Black Panther came out and um, I was talking with a number of folks about sort of the, the number uh, or, or the different levels of, um, of uh, racial perspectives within that movie. And one of the persons I talked to uh, was of Nigerian descent. Uh, It was a Nigerian American. And in our conversation, this person confessed to me. He said, I must confess. He said, before I came to know any African-Americans, the things that I was told about African-Americans was very similar to what I see portrayed in Black Panther, in terms of this concept of African Americans are dangerous, they're uh, they're in poverty all the time, so on and so forth. And so uh, this person said that that was what they had been raised with. And that was the story that they had about African Americans. So there's this... This misperception, this this basically seeing only one side of the story and painting people in one way without learning the full spectrum of who a person is
0: there's this uh book called black samson which is all about the representation of samson uh over 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 time and he's increasingly become racialized as a as a black person which just fits as another kind of case in point of what you're talking about or at least part of what you had just talked about with with that idea of kind of a fixation on a sing- singular aspect of the black experience the black person or something like that and it's just kind of this fixation on strength and physicality and so Let's depict, you know, the strongest person in the Bible uh, as a black person, which is just a really interesting example to what
3: you're talking about. As you talk about the Samson example is that it's also interesting how some uh, mischaracterizations or or better yet simplifications about black bodies, about African-Americans have stayed steady through time. But some have changed because, uh, honestly, if you think back to just even the beginning of the 20th century and we think back to uh, segregation and segregated times, uh, the sports were largely segregated. And part of that was because they believed that African-Americans were inferior athletically as well as intellectually. And it took folks such as Jesse Owens who went to Berlin, Hitler's Berlin in the Olympics uh, to show that African-Americans were just as capable as others athletically. But now that trope has sort of flipped so that in many respects, African-Americans, uh, especially in the sports, are looked at primarily for their athleticism. And But only recently, and I'll say this as well, only recently, um, when I was in college, did um, you start hearing of certain positions, let's say, for instance, in football, where there's the thought of, well, African-Americans are very athletic, but they don't have the intellectual capacity to play the quarterback position or to be the coach or to be the general manager of a team or anything of that nature. So in some respects, some of the, the, the um, tropes and simplifications have been consistent, but in others, it's changed and flipped over time. So that that which African-Americans have proven that they're able to do beyond what people thought they could do now becomes the new trope and the new simplification saying, well, yes, you can do this, but you can't do that at the same time.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that um, conversation and those examples. And um, yeah, just... The problems with having stereotypes and, yeah, assuming things of people just based on their um, appearance. And um, just going back to what was said about that hopeful continuum, um, as what Daniel had said before, how can we look forward or what are some things that we can have hope in uh, looking to the future?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Grace. Thank you um, for for raising that. You know, my my heart um, is always for the church. Um, And so um, I think that my hope begins with the body of Christ um, that God has created. And we know that the body of Christ is diverse in many different ways. And so my hope, I think part of the hope that we can look forward to going forward is that the body of Christ realizes and begins to embrace just the, the amazing diversity and unity that is the body of Christ, that we will recognize um, that God has created us all differently, and He and God has done that for a purpose, that God has created us differently in order to reflect just the diversity that, that God loves, but also the unity that can occur within That diversity. And so uh, that is one piece that I am hopeful for going forward. The second piece that I am hopeful for as we think about who we are in Christ is that I'm hopeful that we will be able to um, get into a a posture of humble listening, being willing to enter into a position where we can learn from one another, we can listen. To one another, and then we are able to interact and dialogue with one another. I feel like the polarization um, has become very strong. And so, if we can move to that position of listening and hearing one another, I think that would be a, a wonderful start. Uh, and then, let me finish with this last hope. Um, and, and this is one of my, my favorites. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, and this, this goes back, this is an ecclesiological hope. He said essentially uh, that we are bound together in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied together in a single garment of destiny. And then he said, I cannot be all that I ought to be, Until you are all that you ought to be. And you cannot be all that you ought to be until I am all that I ought to be. So I think my my final hope is that we recognize that as the body of Christ, that we are tied together. For better or for worse, you know, we're tied together not only now, but in eternity. And so in order for us to succeed and to thrive, it is not a zero-sum game where one gains and the other loses. But in the body of Christ, it's the opposite. So if part of the body of Christ is hurting, my hope is that we would be able to say, wow, my sister or my brother is hurting, which means that I'm hurting my sister or brother's deprived, which means that I am deprived. And so I need to be empathetic um, to my sister or brother's pain, and I need to be able to respond, to come alongside, to mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, and support my sister or brother in order for them to flourish. Because if they flourish, That means that I'm going to flourish as well. And so my hope is that as the body of Christ, as the people of God, that we will capture that biblical mindset, that mindset that Paul lays out in Ephesians, uh, in the book of Ephesians, so that um, we can be that countercultural example to the rest of the society around us of what it means to be the people of God.
0: Well, Dr. Augustine, we just so appreciate having you on and appreciate all of your um, insights and reflections, um, thinking um, more, more deeply about reparations in terms of repentance uh, and, and these sorts of things that I just think are really, really thoughtful. And uh, I, I appreciate um, everything that you shared with us today.
3: Well, John, thank you for having me again. And it's been great being with you. And Grace and Daniel, it's been great being with you all again today. So thank you so much.